This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome back to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. It's a pleasure, as always, to have your company. Well, there can be no doubt that it's a unique time to be a journalist with an upcoming federal election, a global pandemic, natural disasters and even a war thrown in the mix. As cadetships are announced and journalists begin their careers across Australia, we ask what it's like entering the fourth estate arena at this time, and is it an easy feat to get your foot in the door? What are the new tools of the trade that we'll see journalists through in 2022? To discuss this and more, we're joined by two cadet journalists who are just beginning what will no doubt be their long and storied careers. Angus Dalton is with us. He's one of the latest hotshot cadet journal hires at the Sydney Morning Herald, and before that was previously editor-in-chief of Macquarie University's student publication Grapeshot, and was also a co-founding editor of Sweaty City magazine. Angus Dalton, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks so much for having me, Tina. And Rafka Tuma also joins us. She's a cadet journo at Guardian Australia and is studying a double degree in journalism and law at the University of Technology in Sydney, as if one wasn't enough. And she received the Adele Horan Prize and a Judith Nielsen Institute Fellowship, both for her work at Guardian Australia and previously as a producer at 2SER. Rafka Tuma, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate and a welcome back to 2SER. Hello. Well, congratulations to you both on beginning your cadetships. Now, as I mentioned, it's an eventful time to to be a journalist with with many major global news stories breaking all at once. What's it like to begin your careers during this time? Angus, I'm going to go to you first. Yeah, sure. I mean, it is it is insane with everything going on. I mean, I think everyone's been waiting for the news cycle to slow down since like, I don't know, 2018, 2019 at least with like, you know, Donald Trump and then the Black Summer bushfires in Australia and then, uh, you know, and then now record floods and like wave after wave of COVID. And like Betty White died in there some t- at some point, you know, like it's just insane. That one really hard, um, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary time to be alive. I keep like visualising what the history textbooks or like history websites whatever the kids will have in like 40 years time will look like and (laughs) surely we'll have like half the freaking book just over the last two years like it's absolutely extraordinary but an incredible time to start in a newsroom as well equally um i think all the you know the the skill of journalism um and in particular i have a soft spot for science journalism which really like found its way into people's lives in the most extraordinary way with the COVID pandemic and us all becoming, you know, data freaks and medical quasi experts and all that sort of stuff. Um, And I think you saw a lot of, you know, a lot of people returning or finding like, you know, traditional journalism and traditional news outlets again in a really beautiful way. 
because it was some somewhere they could go where they could get trusted information. So um, yeah, it's it's an incredible incredible time to be engaged with the news. It's sort of funny being you know hearing people discuss the front page and it's like you know an, another like devastating flood story or like another shocking shocking tragic um, you know. Uh, military event in Ukraine and it's like you know it's it's hard but um, I know sometimes it's just like oh my god is this is, is there a story out there someone just like getting married underwater or something just like a nice feel-good story um, but it's important that we don't look away you know I always think my coping mechanism to deal with these crazy world events is to look them straight down the barrel and engage with them um, and I think a lot of people feel like that as well it's like you know information and understanding is power and I think you know that's what that's what helps me like understanding this stuff and engaging with it so yeah it's an extraordinary time to to be joining a newsroom that's for sure. Rafka to you. I think Angus hit the nail on the head when he looked to the history books of the future. I heard I'm not sure where from that journalism can be described as writing the first draft of history and I think definitely having the opportunity to like intern and uh, have a full-time placement as a fellow at the Guardian especially towards the end of last year solidified that understanding for me I was able to work through the peak of our pandemic um, experience especially in Sydney within the Guardian newsroom and see how they handled such a catastrophic event I was able to speak to families who had experienced COVID death um, people navigating anti-vax understandings and growing out of that teenagers who had been in hospital um, because of of COVID and then being able to return this year as a cadet and immediately jump into reporting on floods in Lismore and Queensland uh, and being able to also learn from the international desk on exactly like Angus said military developments in a kind of it's being called the greatest catastrophe or conflict in Europe since the second world war it is definitely living through history and it's humbling to be able to learn in a newsroom as that is happening and unfolding and contribute to the writing of that. What's the current situation for, for young journalists who are, who are trying to get their foot in the door for a media job? Rafka, what's been your experience? For me, it has been definitely jumping across as many side hustles as I can and putting my hand up for every opportunity that comes up and that interests me. Um, I started in 2020 studying with the School of the New York Times and I unfortunately had to come back after two months because of the pandemic and so I just kind of threw myself into university and at the end of the year applied for an internship the Adele Horan Prize at The Guardian and I was young to apply but I did it anyway um, I was successful I don't know how <laughs> um, and in between that internship and my fellowship back at The Guardian later in the year I was working at a law firm. I was producing it to SCR as a volunteer. I was freelance writing uh, and I was working at the ABC overnight as uh, on the television desk for international news. And so I think for me, it was definitely building as vast a skill set as I could, putting my, my feelers out there, getting my foot in the door wherever I could to, to gain experience uh, and to kind of increase my chances wherever I could to get back to the place where I wanted to be. And, and that place is the guardian. So I'm very lucky to have the cadetship that I do now. Um, and I think it has definitely been a matter of just putting myself out there as much as I can. Angus? 
Yeah, it's funny, Rafka, um, you saying that you were too young to apply for that particular opportunity. Yeah. I felt like I was too old to apply for the Sydney Morning Herald <laughs> traineeship. I felt like I was a bit of a toolie applying. Um, but um, but I think that goes to, and, you know, I've certainly done a lot of writing, a lot of freelance journalism, made a lot of my own opportunities as well over the last, you know, 10 years since being out of high school. Um, if you want to work in journalism, if you are enthusiastic and open to feedback, it will happen to you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what age you are. You deserve to take up space in a newsroom and if you are passionate about what writing or podcasting or TV can do for audiences, you will find a place that I can say with 100% um, mm-hmm. belief. But, you know, it is, it is hard and the opportunities don't always come up. Um, and, but like there's, you know, for people who are studying journalism, like I always encourage people to take their, you know, assignments and pitch them. And then if you don't land, you know, land that spot in the Guardian or Sydney Morning Herald, um, what I did with a um, piece that I didn't get um, published, I went and founded my own magazine with a bunch of like-minded people and published it there. Um, you know what I mean? So I think, you know, Rafka, exactly what you were talking about, just like doing as much as you can, putting your hand up and all that sort of stuff. And I will say as well, like, you know, unfortunately, um, you sort of do have to do quite a bit of unpaid work and that isn't open to a lot of people, but to be completely practical, it is part of what you need to do if you wanna work in media and if you wanna work in journalism, the key is finding a balance, right? Like I started back when I was 16 or 17, a small arts magazine asked me to start reviewing books for them. And that was a good trade, right? Like I got a free book, it was only 300 (laughs) words per review um, and I was happy to do that, you know what I mean? And that's what started, you know, um, building my writing. And then, you know, I ended up doing an internship with that magazine, got my foot in the door in terms of, you know, doing more longer form features, a bit of reporting on the publishing industry. And that was my foot in the door. Look, if you're, you know, being, you know, uh, creating content for someone that can afford to pay you for, you know, more than say three months without a proper job at the end, I would advise against that. But I would definitely encourage you to, when you can, put your hand up, do things, volunteer at, you know, your local community radio station, go and join your student newspaper. Um, I cannot overstate the opportunities that doing that sort of thing can, can bring about. Okay. Angus, you mentioned uh, the fact that you formed your own uh, publication with a bunch of like-minded people. I, of course, want to talk about Sweaty City, um, which you co-founded. It's a Sydney magazine about climate change and urban, and, and urban ecology. Um, can you tell us about Sweaty City and how you're hoping to report on environmental issues in the future? Yeah, of course. I mean, the idea for Sweaty City started when, I think it was the start of 2018, um, where it was like the 6th of January and Penrith was the hottest place on earth. And it just really felt like for the first time that climate change was in our backyard. So that was sort of the impetus to start thinking about how can we tell local stories of climate change? And like the media was getting a lot better at that, you know, three or four years later. But um, at the time, like there wasn't a lot of climate stories at all, to be honest. And there definitely wasn't a lot of climate stories that did a good job of taking it from this atmospheric Antarctic saga and making it matter to people walking down the street. So we wanted to sort of take a local journalism approach and apply it to the biggest, most sort of ambiguous, terrifying um, issue that that was out there. And um, I think it works really well. Like the stories that we get are so fascinating, you know, um, scrutinizing how climate change is affecting Sydney's wildlife and affecting our sport and our music culture. You know, so that was sort of like the idea behind it because that's the thing, right? Like I think good journalism always produces stories that matter to people or explains why people should care about a particular story. And I think for a really long time, people just couldn't engage with climate change on like an emotional level because it was, 
you know, represented with graphs and, you know, these stouches in the media between politicians in suits and scientists analysing bubbles in Antarctic ice. You know what I mean? Like, where are we in that? So those are the questions that we were asking. And so we just started going out and talking to, to local artists, talking to our peers, talking to local Indigenous groups, talking to like everyone from botanists to basketball players to bass players, you know what I mean? And asking their thoughts on climate change and how it affected them. Yeah, the, the stories that people have written for us, the stories that we've found are really extraordinary. And I think I think the media is doing a lot better job at covering climate at the moment. You definitely see that with the floods at the moment. I think uh, our sort of natural disaster reportage and climate reportage have become interlinked in a way that was always really necessary. And hopefully we're getting a little bit away from now's not the time to talk about climate change like now is the perfect time to talk about climate change every day is the perfect day to talk about climate change but particularly when like thousands of people are being forced homeless by floods made worse by climate change so you know it's gotten a lot better and um but i still think sweaty city occupies like a really interesting and cool space in in journalism and in climate writing just for its really local approach it's a fantastic pub- publication. I've got um, uh, both volumes uh, on my bookshelf and um, they're beautifully written pieces of journalism and the photo essays that accompany them are stunning. Um, and Rathka, you yourself, Angus, you've talked about the fact there that you've actually made these topics much more accessible for probably a younger readership as well. Rathka, you co-host a, a YouTube channel called Rat where you break down the news headlines. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you created it? Again, you, you found a way to make uh, news a bit more accessible for a younger generation. It's exactly what Angus said about occupying a space um, that needs to be filled with conversation so young people can engage with these, these big ideas, these headlines that do matter, but that a lot of people don't or may not understand or know how to grapple with. And so I think it also comes out of an interesting move in media and technology to produce content that is more newsworthy and more authoritative when explaining the news. So Wrapped came about in the middle of last year with the Google Digital News Initiative. It's called their Creator Program for Independent Journalists. And they are funding with grants 40 independent journalists across the world to produce objective independent news for their YouTube platform because they felt they needed more news that was factual and not fake on their platform. Um, And I was so fortunate to have been accepted into that program with my peer from university, Travis Radford, who focuses on regional Australian news on the channel. And I focus on headlines that are important in Australia, but also globally, and then I break them down so that there is less jargon complicating what the story might be about. So it is a really fun project. I feel like I'm learning a lot on a personal level about producing stories in different ways, reaching a younger audience, asking different questions and definitely structuring a news piece in a way that is more engaging and gets to the point in in a more break it down way, if that makes sense. So I feel like I'm learning a lot from it and I think it speaks definitely to a move in, in the media landscape in Australia for young people to be more engaged through various forms. Um, you're seeing across social media, uh, TikTok, Matilda Bosley from The Guardian is incredible. She's getting millions of young Australians engaged with headlines that would otherwise be 
very difficult to understand. And on TikTok, it's because the audience there is completely different to what you might find on an online web page for a traditional media outlet or in a newspaper. Uh, and the same goes for the Daily Oz on Instagram. Um, they are producing really incredible content to help young people, especially with the upcoming federal election, understand various policies that we might need to consider when looking at who we're going to vote for. So I think, yes, my work with Wrapped is so exciting and I'm grateful to be a part of this growing space online where news is experimental and, and working with this younger audience. One thing that I think is really important to touch on, which I think, Angus, you've sort of mentioned in, uh, you know, when you were talking about working for free, um, and which is, you know, it's not ideal, but it realistically, it's what a lot of young journos have to do um, to really, you know, get their start in the industry. Do you think this really does open up an issue, though, for there to be less diversity within in media and journalism? Because people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds don't have the option to work for free and to, to live at home and, and, and not pay rent or bills. Do you think this makes for a much less diverse media? Ravka, as someone who um, comes from a more racially diverse background, um, I, I'd be keen to hear what you your thoughts on this. Yes, so I'm um, Lebanese-Australian, born in Australia. My grandparents are from Lebanon uh, and I'm very grateful to see diversity in newsrooms become a topic more widely discussed in the Australian media landscape. And I think your question about access to the newsroom is a really important one. And it is why internships like the Adele Horan internship that I was fortunate to be successful for are so important because they are paid experiences inside a newsroom for people who might not be able to access it. Otherwise, as like you said, unpaid work experience isn't something everyone can do. Not everybody lives at home. Not everybody has financial support. Um, it, it is a very important move that I am seeing in parts of the industry for young people who are trying to get their foot in the door. Clay College, a private tertiary institution, uh, made headlines recently after an email was sent out to students two weeks into the semester that their diploma and, and Bachelor of Journalism courses wouldn't uh, be running any longer. Now, although Junkie reported that a new email was sent to, to students stating the course was never cancelled, on that note, what role do you think journalism schools and, and universities have in training future journalists? Uh, Angus, to you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's really shocking to sort of screw um, student journalists and students in general around like that. Um, I will point out that, you know, this is one of the functions of student media. When I was on the, the Grapeshot News team, when I was running Grapeshot, you know, we did a lot of journalism um, that backed up students because, you know, with the increasing corporatization of universities, increasingly students are just seen as, um, you know, cash cows essentially, um, which is not right. Like universities should be these incredible community spaces where everyone is cared for and where their studies are really valued. So I think that was really disappointing. And it's a reason that I think universities should all have really strong, robust student media. So there's someone there to stick up for the students. And also on the note of like the importance of universities teaching journalism um, and colleges and, and that sort of thing. Someone put it to me really beautifully one time where it's like university, obviously it's really great, all the theory and blah, 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 blah. And the lectures, yeah, great. But the <laughs> most important thing university does is give you a chance to 
F around with not a lot of consequences. That's how this person put it to me. And I've never forgotten that. I mean, sometimes there are consequences. I got a lot of defamation letters uh, when I was running the student paper. But for the most part, um, I just got to learn on the job and, you know, practice the tools and like a good journalism course, like makes you write articles, makes you interview people. And just being able to do that is the best way to learn. And, you know, all of those, those are my favorite times at university when I was doing a class that actually culminated in the win, when you didn't finish in a freaking exam, when you finished in writing a beautiful article um, or a news report or something and having the chance to, you know, make a magazine, you know, that was my education. It wasn't in, you know, a tutorial or a lecture hall, even though some of the experience you can get from that is obviously fantastic. But give, giving, people, giving young people the opportunity to get together and get on the tools. And also everyone that I started Sweaty City with, the designers, the editors, the contributors, I met at uni. Like we need these communities that bring people together from different backgrounds so we can innovate and get together and, and build new places to communicate with other young people um, and more diverse audiences as well. So I'm a big believer in, in keeping journalism in universities and, and colleges and, and all that sort of stuff. When studying journalism and beginning your career as a journalist, what was something that surprised each of you? Uh, maybe, a, you know, a preconceived idea about journalism that, that got turned on its head. I'm, I'm going to go to you first, Rafka, and then I want to hear from you, Angus. Hmm, I have to think about this one. Um, I wasn't a big newsy before I started studying journalism. So I'm, I went in expecting a really sharky culture because I'd heard a lot about the difficulties of getting your foot in the door and of competitive environments. Um, and that is something that I have experienced. But I think what has turned on its head is how generous mentors are with young people who are trying to get their foot in the door in the industry and learn and grow. I am so fortunate to have met mentors at university through other work experiences, just reaching out on Twitter um, from the ABC, from university as well. I think that is the preconception of everyone is cold, everyone is scary. <laughs> um, maybe I'm naive, but I was really pleasantly surprised and I'm still very grateful for the openness and the generosity of time and insight from especially older journalists who want to see you grow and succeed. I'll definitely echo that as well. Like going into the Sydney Morning Herald newsroom, like I just had this, you know, old fashioned sort of idea of like all these blokes sitting around like grinding cigarettes in the desk and being like, get out of my way, kid. Um, but everyone is absolutely freaking lovely as well. Um, and so, so eager to, to share that knowledge. I'll definitely agree with that rapper as well. And the other thing that um, I tried to do as a young journalist when I was interviewing people was try to like come to the table like really smart and like obviously working for an arts magazine I interviewed like a lot of like very impressive like you know authors and stuff so I try and come in and you know impress them with my literary chops as a freaking 17 year old which obviously always went down like a ton of bricks. Um, what I've learned now is, is the role of a journalist is, is to ask the dumb questions, the simple questions. Your job is to be a conduit from people with expertise to the broader public, right? So that means you go in there, you ask the dumb questions, you ask the simple questions, you shut up and you listen. I don't know, I, I just had this feeling that, you know, I always had to be like really articulate. I mean, obviously, as a radio journalist, Tina, you're incredibly articulate, but I don't have to be, thank God. Oh, shucks. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a big welcome learning curve, that dumb questions are always welcome. Mm -hmm. 
The Telem Asia Pacific Journalism 2022 survey was recently released, which surveyed over 1,000 journalists across the Asia Pacific region. Now, 70% of survey respondents felt the rise of social media and digital platforms either elevated or, or reinforced the need for quality journalism. Angus, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. And when I read that statement, I sort of started thinking about that phrase you hear bandied around, which is everyone's a journalist now because everyone has access to recording devices in our phones and everyone has access to once it was blogging, now it's social media. Um, but I don't think that's true. I think everyone is a recorder. Everyone has the capacity to record what they're seeing and air their opinion. But that doesn't make them someone that's trained to verify information and get down to the truth. Like we're seeing that in Ukraine. It is so important we know exactly what is happening on the ground there, especially when it comes to potentially, you know, trialling for war crimes and stuff like that. And we're seeing so much footage that is from other wars, other places, video games, you know what I mean? That just get millions of views online. But if you don't have journalists verifying that information beforehand, it can be very detrimental to the legal process, to the world's understanding of what's actually going on there. So... I really think that, you know, with these social media and digital platforms on the rise, like it does definitely democratise journalism in a good way, but also having those professional verifiers, which is what journalism is, a big part of what journalism is, has never been more important for the exact same reason. Ravka, you know, you work for Guardian Australia. They are fantastic at utilising uh, social media platforms to get their messaging out. They're, they're not afraid of utilising at utilising sources, going through Twitter or sort of that that social media journalism that we're sort of speaking about. What are your thoughts? I think there is definitely a big priority within the Guardian newsroom, growing over the last year. Uh, towards meeting an audience where they already are. We're seeing a lot of young people receive their news in their social media feeds and they're not going out of their way to open a browser and open the Guardian's website online. Maybe if you're older, you might link from Facebook, uh, but I know people in my age bracket, I'm 20 years old, don't use Facebook even. It's TikTok, it's Instagram, it's Twitter. And The Guardian is definitely making moves and investments to increase the way that they deliver news so that stories have a longer life as well. Uh, after they fall off the homepage on the browser, they'll be repurposed, redelivered via Instagram uh, in Reels and TikToks as well. It's a priority and it's reaching a different audience that wasn't being reached before. Uh, and I'm grateful and excited to also contribute to that hopefully over the next year. It is so interesting. I have, you know, friends in, in both sort of age brackets, those that are in their early 20s who are sending me, you know, they're sort of getting their news from TikTok. They're sending me TikTok videos mm -hmm. saying, did you see this and did you see that? And um, it's great that it's, uh, there's a way that it's, they're sort of being engaged in that sense with the news and what's going on you know, on the halls of parliament, <laughs> uh, you know, weirdly enough through TikTok, but then I'm sort of part of that generation that, yes, definitely uh, is more of an article sharer or, you know, loves, I, I, I love, I love a good read. So, you know, um, I can't, can't get past that. Uh, the Tellum survey asked journalists, what are the most important skills for today's journalists? Now, the news judgment and verification, writing and language and, and curiosity, they're listed as the top three skills for today's journos. What do you think are the top skills 
needed for today's journalists. Angus, I'll go to you first. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's the verification skill that I was chatting out before that I think is so important. Um, you can also phrase that as debunking, you know, debunking conspiracy theory, debunking false information. What I think is also an incredibly important skill that I've become a little bit obsessed with is this concept known as pre-bunking. Because there's been some really interesting research that's come out from some psychologists at the University of Sydney and the CSIRO um, about how once, once conspiracy theorists have their hooks in someone, there is no getting those hooks out. News media is just too slow and lumbering and unconvincing for, for people who have these um, dangerous alternative views, like anti-vaxxers, um, to convince them otherwise, right? But there's this really interesting research that shows that if, if we can get to vulnerable people before they have access to these conspiracy theories. I'll use the example of say there's a small town and um, a wind farm is about to be built um, right next to it. A lot of this happened sort of back in 2009 when a lot of really big wind farms were coming to Australia. Um, if you just go, plow into that town, build a wind farm and get out again, suddenly you're gonna get all of these conspiracy theories about wind turbine syndrome and people feeling nauseous and people having mysterious nosebleeds because you haven't engaged with that town. You haven't made them aware or got them excited about this technology and what's going to be good for not only their town but the nation and the world but if you can get to them before and get them in, engaged with the technology and also warn them and be like hey this is how conspiracy theorists will actually try to convince you this is a bad thing people can be pre-bunked rather than debunked with information and that is to say you can vaccinate someone against becoming an anti-vaxxer. Um, so that's something that I'm thinking about a lot in terms of like a journalism skill, sort of like being aware of, of opportunities for um, bad faith actors to mislead people and trying to be ahead of the curve and get to people first. That's a really interesting point. Do you think this will change in the next few years, Ravka? Well, I think what Angus said is very interesting and the engagement point is very important. And going back to what you said about the important skill of a journalist, that engagement, I think, definitely comes down to being able to speak an audience's language. And when you have people who might look like you, who might come from somewhere similar to you, who speak in a way that you do uh, and, and break down jargon, that would be confusing and that would leave room for, for doubt, for guessing, for fear. It's that that leaves room for the conspiracy that Angus was describing. And to your question about whether this will change in the next few years, I think with the COVID pandemic, even with looking to the United States and the conspiracy surrounding President Trump's or ex-President Trump's um, election, I think there's a lot more conversation about what is real and what is fake and the role of the journalist and the importance of their work pre-bunking, like Angus says, and debunking will continue to be really important. With social media comes the opportunity to hear lots of different perspectives about global issues that are not in our backyard, issues that have been existing for decades, but you also see fake news, lobbyists behind screens, it is kind of like a new form of technological warfare. So in every aspect, I really believe that the role of journalism is definitely what Angus said, pre-bunking, debunking, verifying, engaging people where they are so they are able to understand what is going on around them and don't have to resort to, to fear and conspiracy. 
There's been a lot of debate in journalism circles about objective journalism versus advocacy journalism. Now, the practice of journalism is not a sharp dichotomy, but where do you all stand on that debate? Angus, to you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a place for both. I mean, 10 years ago, a lot of climate journalists were seen as advocacy journalists and now everywhere is covering climate change in a way it probably should have been covered 10, 20 years ago. Um, but to be honest, the scientific uh, thinker in me really values objective journalism trying to get to the truth of the matter like I really think a lot of good journalism is analogous to the scientific process like you know science is you come up with a hypothesis an educated guess about an observation that you've made and then you actively try to disprove that idea you're not trying to prove your own beliefs or prove your own ideas you're trying to find information that actually disproves it and if you can't disprove it then it's probably the truth right that's how I look at journalism and I think that's sort of the core of objective journalism and and the beauty of it as well of um trying trying as best you can to get rid of any sort of biases or preconceived ideas that you have. So I do really think there's room for both, but I do think in today's world that objective journalism is, is probably more important. Rafka? I think Angus is completely right, but I do think that objective journalism can go hand in hand with very human-based journalism. When I think about who I'm writing for, it's for people. You're, you're maybe breaking down a report in order to help people understand why it's important to them, how it will impact their life. And so you can be objective, but still empathetic and humane in your reporting. And I think that is, dichotomy was the word you used. I think it is important to see that both can exist at the same time. Well, I'm definitely feeling much more optimistic about the outlook for the media industry here in Australia uh, with the both of you now in it. Angus Dalton, thank you so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. Thanks, Tina. And Raf Katuma, thank you for joining us on Fourth Estate as well and coming back to 2SER. Thank you for having me back. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4th Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Marlene Even and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe and catch us next week on 4th Estate.